Hey, Paul, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well, John. I want to thank you for taking some time. Um, I mean this in a good way. I've considered you an, uh, an amateur historian of a whole host of things in the financial crime space, but not amateur in that you don't, you don't know your, your subject. You know it very, very well. But there's two things particular of interest uh, that I always enjoy talking to you about. And at one point, we can go, we'll talk about one of the other ones, maybe in a future interview. And that's your, uh, the history of the Bank Secrecy Act and the use of the Bank Secrecy Act, you know, prior to 1970, what's happened since. You've done some really good work in the AML space. So obviously um, a passion for you, but the other clear passion of yours and one in which uh, I've been trying to do this for a while with you, because it's, I think it's so important for us to understand quote, heroes, unquote, in financial crime history that don't get enough play. And that's, of course, uh, Elmer Irie. And, um, you know, I was doing some uh, refreshing, uh, refreshing uh, uh, look back at some of the things that I had seen on on Mr. Irie before. And one of the things that I, I, I guess I had forgotten, didn't know, but he was uh, the longest serving IRS CI chief and and obviously, you've been a very not a passionate um, articulator of what he's done. So let's start with that. So give give folks in the financial crime space that are listening to this a sense of uh, why Elmer Irie has been so important, not just to IRS, but to financial crime in general. Uh, John, well, well, thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about uh, Elmer Irie. Uh, I, I am beyond passionate about his story. I'm uh, as many people say, I'm 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 obsessed with it because I think it's such a great story. Uh, but in a nutshell, you know, I recreated uh, what we know as the IRS criminal investigation it was called the Intelligence Unit back then. Right. And um, it was uh, put in place to to go after just epic tax evasion and corruption within Treasury. And he led before he you know, I think the the traditional narrative about Irie as well. He was a guy that caught Capone and all these kingpin gangsters. And I think his story is much bigger than that. You know, he, before that, he led one of the biggest, I think probably the, the largest uh, wave of going after corruption in the history of the United States back then. And he, he actually saved the tax system. Right. Uh, and then um, as he was going after tax evaders, who were many during that time, the tax rates were very high and they needed to collect money for the uh, pay for World War One. Um, he he and his and his his agents started to develop what we know now know as forensic uh, accounting. You know, the whole ability to follow the money that all came from Irie. And uh, I shudder to think if Irie wasn't astute and, uh, and skilled, uh, where we would be in, in as as a country with uh, in our ability to follow the money, because a lot of co other countries weren't doing it. You know, it was the United States that, and I, what I did, um, it, it, you know, he was the actual uh, pioneer of that. And then obviously the story of him, you know, when, when others couldn't and wouldn't, um, when uh, America was about to fall off the cliff with these organized crime, just taking over wide swaths with their uh, of commerce, with their rackets, 
where it became FD, uh, excuse me, uh, President um, Hoover's number one priority to get Capone. Irish stepped up and his team, and they got Capone. Not only they got Capone, they got Waxy Gordon, they got Nucky Johnson. It's, the list just goes on and on of the Kingpin Bank gangsters. And and still, I don't think that's his greatest work. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the list goes on with, you know, he pioneered what we now know is the, uh, as, the as federal, state, and local uh, task forces. You know, he he reinvigorated Treasury law enforcement, you know, as he was ran IRS CI back then, he became um, the coordinator, all Treasury law enforcement. You know, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, uh, But when you get a chance, finish your thought. But uh, he was also engaged with the. Lindbergh kidnapping, which people just recognize as a historical point. But yeah, finish your thought and then tell us uh, how he was involved in in, uh, in that case as well. Yeah, you know, uh, well, let me get to that because that's a hot. Uh, so sure. after after the conviction of Capone, you know, um, Elmer is really popular. Everybody knows Elmer as a great gangster slayer. And in the midst of this, uh, he's sending his team to New York to go after Wacky, uh, Waxy Gordon, uh, all the other public enemies in New York. His, his men are stretched thin going after the kingpins. In the middle of that, he gets a call from the head of Treasury saying, go to Hopewell, New Jersey, and go uh, meet with the most famous man in the world. That was Charles Lindbergh. And it was actually Charles Lindbergh that requested Irie's assistance because when his baby was kidnapped, Everybody assumed it was gangsters. In fact, Al Capone is in prison telling a Hertz uh, reporter, one of the most top uh, newsmen there, that, hey, if you let me out, I can find the gangster who did it. So Elmer goes to Hopewell, New Jersey, meets with the most famous man in the world and tells him, Capone's lying. You know, we're your baby is. And um, but. Lindbergh told him, he goes, look, you know, I, I, all these people are ascending on my house. You got state and local police. You've got even gangsters. Everybody wanted to help in this. And he says, I can't trust anybody. <laughs> but Irie was was such a uh, admired, right. revered figure that he turned to him. He actually Lindbergh actually blew off Jago Hoover. Hoover wanted to come in and help. But he, he asked for Irie. Um, you know, John, one thing when we tell the story of Elmer, I've told it in a traditional sense in the past about, OK, this is why it's a historically significant story, because of all the things that he did. He was there at the right time, right place at the right time. Uh, but it, but the story, what makes the story network uh, uh, Netflix worthy uh, for the big screen right. is the relationship between Elmer Irie and Jager Hoover, because Jager Hoover hated Elmer Irie out of professional jealousy. And it's hard not telling the Elmer Irie story without weaving in uh, Hoover, because it explains why the public doesn't un- know about Elmer Irie and, and why everybody knows about Jager Hoover. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Uh, and, and I've seen that and it's mentioned on the Mob Museum website, which we'll talk about later as well. And that is the publicity that was generated by Hoover and the FBI. Obviously, they had a movie in the 50s, but in, from the 20s on or whenever the FBI was created, it was always about publicity. But this is an example of uh, an agency that was doing its job, had their head down, and 
to your point, just didn't get the same media attention, if any. And so when you've done your research and gone back through those periods of time, um, was it just simply because, uh, you know, Hoover's PR machine was what it was? Or, um, you know, was it the fact that it was Irie's personality? So was it necessarily that reporters couldn't figure out that the IRS was so important here? It was, unlike Hoover, he was not somebody who cultivated the media. Is, Is that even... Has that even ever been discussed? Yeah. So, it, yeah, it's it's multifaceted. But the two major prongs of it is one, Irie did not he uh, he was not in, in it for self-glorification. He was humble to a T. You know, uh, what pride he took on his work was pride of his agents. He called it pardonable pride. You know what what they were able to accomplish collectively. But he shied away from the media, first of all, because. He didn't, you know, it was dangerous back then. You're going after these kingpin gangsters. He didn't want his name out. Second of all, he didn't want to compromise the investigation. He was very astute uh, investigator. He really knew how to piece these cases together and more importantly, get them prosecuted. And it, it just it just didn't serve his mission. Uh, and then secondly, you know, uh, when Ivory took down uh, Capone and these kingpins, the media was starved. They just they wanted more stories and, and Irie blew, blew off um, uh, the, the media, including some of these top uh, radio journalists. Um, and uh, it was around that time that they, um, that you had these small, you know, had this band of bank robbers in the Midwest taking off, taking over right. banks, robbing banks. And, you know, they, they were so starved for kingpin gangster stories that they started focusing on that. And um, and Jager Hoover um, and they uh, they they started kind of embellishing the stories, you know, and Jager Hoover uh, established his own PR department. There was no there was no other law enforcement that did this. And uh, all of a sudden it went to these G-Men stories, um, comic books, toys, and the public couldn't get enough of these stories. Right. And, and Jager Hoover and his team were right there to feed these stories. And they would, even though Jager Hoover was not out there taking credit uh, for Irie's work, he didn't stop it. And the public took a lot of, you know, assumed that a lot of the work of the Treasury uh, agents, what they call the T-Men, was actually the work of the G-Men. And, um, and then, you know, um, in later years, the whole thing came up with Elliot Ness and I mean, I don't want to get too much into it, but S really, Ness really had nothing to do with, with Al Capone going to prison. Uh, he wasn't even a treasury agent at that time. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And obviously, Elmer uh, passed away. He was only 60 when he passed away, I think in 1948. I'm all, and I want to, uh, again, t- t- I think that's part of it too, right? How long ago it's been. I mean, Hoover, Hoover died in the 70s. So, you know, he obviously hung in there a lot longer and, I think we all would admit did some pretty horrendous, <laughs> horrendous things uh, later, later in the sixties and seventies, uh, not the FBI itself, but, but Hoover certainly has been accused of some things. Um, what, you know, it says that, you know, the treasury was able to use the tax code to go after a lot of these gangsters to the extent that, you know, how were they using these statues? Cause obviously the BSA wasn't created until 1970 You've done some research to sort of pre 
BSA, just in general, how were they able to bring tax evasion and tax uh, code violation cases to get some of these uh, leaders, uh, organized crime leaders, to prison? Well, it started with the case, Supreme Court case in 1927, um, uh, where the Supreme Court upheld the legitimacy of using the tax laws to go after illegal income. Because prior to that, they were gangsters saying, I don't have to claim this. It's self-incrimination, and the government shouldn't be in the business of going after illegal income. And and Mabel Willibrandt, who was the, uh, uh, they call her the first lady of law enforcement, uh, she uh, took that to the Supreme Court. She was a big uh, supporter of Elmer Irie, and uh, she wanted she wanted Ivory to go after all the the, uh, the prohibition gangsters. And Irie said, "Well, we're having this challenge." So she took it to the Supreme Court. She won. She goes and tells Irie, "Now go get these guys." And um, and so, you know, by then they had really mastered the art of following the money. And it not only was just looking through books, you know, following the money on and off uh, the, the books, but they also really developed the art of undercover investigations. You know, Hoover did not have his agents do undercover. It was Irie's hmm. agents that were doing undercover. And they really pioneered the, this work and including one of their, uh, you know, Irie was a big fan of an undercover agent by the name of Mike Malone, who infiltrated the Capone organization you know, many of the kingpin organizations he infiltrated. And so they they really pioneered um, that art of how to follow the money. It wasn't, um, you know, they, they developed this, what they call the silk drawer defense, uh, uh, method, where instead of looking at the books and records, they figured out how much they spent uh, on their life expenditures. You know, when they knew on Capone, they knew how much he spent for meat, silk underwear, you know, clothing, his hotels, they, they, and they piece it all together. And which seems like, well, that's just a standard thing Iris does. It, it wasn't, it was very novel back then. So at the time then, the, uh, fair to say that, so, sort of like it is today, I, I, I suppose, for the most of the, the treasury agents, now IRS CI agents, one of the ways you get in um, and, and apply is if you have an accounting background, your CPA. So it's, it's pretty, even though the other agencies do a little bit of that, the main focus is you need people that can do the the analytics and have the accounting understanding to to bring these tax cases, right? That was the case back then, and, and to some degree is still the case today, right? Yeah, they were highly, you know, when 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 they started seeing the successes of following the money, um, uh, they they turned to Irene's team. I mean, it, uh, I can tell you, you know, the if you look at L.A. Right. back then. Um, they were gangsters were just going nuts back in, in L.A. And it was the mayor of L.A. that turned to Irie and said, you got to help us because everybody was looking at their area and seeing, well, I got a Capone situation. Same with Nucky Johnson, the Atlanta, you know, Boardwalk Empire, right. HBO fame. Uh, it was it was um, they, they went to Irie and says, law enforcement has been trying to get this guy for 25 years. We're not able to do it. Now, part of that was they were so on the local end, there was so much corruption, right? They, he owned the judges, the police, the juries. And they said, we have the same situation that's happening in Chicago. And we need Irene and his team to come down and compone uh, uh, Nucky Johnson. So, so clearly they were, they knew that there was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, an elite skill set that they just couldn't just do on their own. They needed Irie's assistance. 
And in, in fact, on the Nucky Johnson case, it was brilliant work piecing together uh, the indirectly um, what Nucky's Johnson, um, you know, his his tax evasion. And he got 10 years for that. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because they weren't turning to the FBI right. and and um, and not because they weren't competent agents. It was just this skill set that they possessed. And uh, and it was also Jake Hoover didn't play nice in the sandbox. He, you know, Irie felt that, look, I can't just come down and take care of all your problems because you guys got to work together collectively. We need to have these coordinated meetings. And that was a big thing that Irie did when he became the chief coordinator of all Treasury law enforcement. He set up all these coordinators around the country. And a lot of them were a special agent in charge. And they were tasked to, hey, first we're gonna promote mutual understanding. We're not gonna have these feud battles. We're all gonna understand that we're all in it together. We have a common goal. And then we're going to rely on all our law enforcement partners. You know, you're not only coordinating with Treasury, you need to coordinate with the state and local. Irie just thought it was just incredibly inefficient that there were these turf battles you know, everybody wanted to take claim for something. And it was interesting because of his character, he was able to do that because, because all these right. big egos in treasury law enforcement, they looked at Irie and says, you know, I, I really respect that guy. And he's definitely not a, in it for fame. Uh, yeah. Isn't it, isn't it funny, wrong word, but isn't it ironic that we still have the issue we had at 9-11, post 9-11, Get, getting law enforcement to work together. Now, agents like when you were in, agents like you, you would work with your you know, your peers and colleagues at the FBI or DHS. But it, but a lot of times the personalities at the top of the house, and not even the directors, but in the heads of divisions. You know, I I right. talked to a lot of your, uh, of, again, a lot of your peers, and I know a few folks who are now out of law enforcement said the same thing. So. Obviously, we're just so much more effective when, when we work together. So he he identified that, obviously, quite a long time ago. So when he passed away in 48, again, only at the age of 60, what was the immediate impact, if any, that you've been able to discern at IRS CI sort of in, in the 50s and beyond? I mean, we, we know, uh, obviously, where we are today. And obviously, there's been a couple of great decades of work in the 80s, drug trafficking, all the issues, and you've had some really good uh, directors, and we both uh, know, and um, we're fortunate uh, here at Right Source that on our advisory board is the last one, Don Fort. So there's a lot of good folks. But what happened immediately after he passed, the extent that you can you could figure that out from the research at the time? Um, well, when he passed, people were just crestfallen. Um, it, it didn't really make a lot of media attention. It was just a blurb in there. Uh, but his legacy really lived yeah. on. I mean, one of his hallmark achievements was what we call the special agent report. Irie was a belief that the only way your case is going to get prosecuted is the agent needs to do the work to piece the case together in a report that a prosecutor, prosecutor can understand. Now, today that seems, well, yeah, but that wasn't the case. And still today, it, you know, IRS it has a, has still has that special agent report that was right. that was developed by. And in fact, in 1930, well, that was about 1936, 37, the Massachusetts U.S. attorney is talking to one of the coordinating groups and he's complaining about Jager Hoover and his and just throwing a bunch of information on his desk. And he says, these reports that you guys do are far mm -hmm. superior than our agents in the Department of Justice. And it all went about that Irie knew he was a seasoned investigator. Now, Jay Hoover wasn't a seasoned investigator when he, 
Oh, interesting fact. When the FBI needed to find a new director because it was, uh, you know, it was just a train wreck because they had so much right. corruption. Uh, uh, it was between two people. It was Jager Hoover and Elmer Iger. Interesting. Wow. By the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and no, look, Jager Hoover did a phenomenal job getting the FBI. Uh, you know, he took a ragtag bunch of, you know, they were, I mean, they were hiring people that were convicted. Wow. <laughs> he cleaned it up and he knew that he needed to have order. And so, look, I'm not trying to right, discount, right. but, uh, but that said, he was, Jager Hoover was always compared to Elmer Irie. And when he died, people really felt, when Elmer died, they, they saw what Hoover was doing and they felt like Hoover, they, people, I think, romanticized that Elmer was going to be their savior, that eventually Irie would be, you know, the top dog and people would follow Irie. But his legacy did continue. Um, and it's interesting because you see this legacy soon after, because in the 1950s, Irie had left the IRS, right? And um, the uh, Truman administration started allowing more patronage jobs mm. in the IRS. And then this big scandal happened in 1950s with allegedly uh, IRS collectors who appointed positions taking bribes from organized crime. And, you know, the 50s organized crime had, you know, reared its ugly head again. And, you know, they involved in illegal gambling, all these rackets. And that came to head with what we call the Keeparper hearings. You know, there was a, there was a uh, Senate committee um, to explore the uh, identity of organized crime in interstate commerce. And, um, and these hearings were televised. And, um, and you can go to the Mom Museum because it's a big right, deal right. at the Mom Museum. It, it talks about this because um, one of the hearings was at the, mom, uh, at the building that the Mom Museum is at. And by that time, Jager, who was so focused on going after communists, he did not want to go after organized crime. It was messy going after these cases. And he didn't believe, he would tell people that, oh, it doesn't exist. You know, this is a local issue. And Harry Anslinger, who ran the, uh, narcotic, the Bureau of Narcotics, he was like, he was a huge Elmer Irie fan, Harry Anslinger, and a big ego. And Harry... And Hoover just got in a battle. And Harry Anslinger had developed all this intel about the mafia. Well, anyways, it came to head in these hearings. And who did the hearings, who did the Senate investigators rely on to go after these kingpins? IRS, uh, it was intelligence right. unit. And they went systematically, they did it again. They came up with these racket squads. And they did the whole thing Elmer did. And they, you know, they took out Mickey Cohen, Frank Costello. I mean, it, the list went on and on. It was all about following the money. And, uh, and then Jager Hoover had to admit that, yeah, there is organized crime. And he got his folks involved in that. And then, you know, when you go into the, um, you know, that, this is what I talk about legacy and why this legacy right. is so important. Because Elmer forced this to be, it's not about kicking down doors and doing all the stuff that you see on TV. It's about got to get your head down and look at these documents you got to follow the money you got to be uh the investigator now let me when elmer died i, I need no 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 this, good uh, go ahead no this is great when <laughs> elmer died the number one paper in in washington dc printed a cartoon and and i need to tell you about describe this cartoon because it shows you what they thought of elmer and what he created and it was it was in 
it was to remember, um, actually it was when he retired. I'm sorry. When he retired in 1946, he died in 1948, but let me just skip yeah, back sure. to this cartoon. So they print this cartoon in the Washington star and it's a picture of, uh, uncle Sam reading a book and it's just the, the work of Elmer Irie, 1909 to 1946. And uncle Sam says to Elmer Irie, now let me say it too. Elmer Irie's behind him. And guess how he's drawn? He's drawn as Sherlock Holmes. He's drawn as Sherlock Holmes. This is such an epic thing to do, given how popular Jager Hoover was, given how he was trying to be, you know, all, everything right. law enforcement. And the, and the paper draws Elmer. They make the definition. Well, here's the real Sherlock Holmes. And Uncle Sam says to Elmer Irie, I hate to close a book on this. You know, uh, you know, it's an, it's a, it's a legacy that even Sherlock Holmes would be proud of. You know, that, that, that's great. I, I want to ask you uh, two more things very quickly, uh, because I do want to get you to talk a little bit about the Mob Museum. If people want to read more about Elmer Irie, um, what books would you recommend? Has there been anything fairly recently? Obviously, again, you're doing a great job keeping his legacy going, and so is the museum. But is, what would you recommend if somebody, you know, one of us uh, – AML nerds <laughs> want to dig deep and w yeah. w what's out there that we could t get our hands on. Uh, there's a book by Robert Folsom called the okay. trail, uh, how Elmer Irie and his team in, uh, I think it, I forgot the lesson, but it's yeah, Bob, Robert yeah. Folsom, the money trip. Uh, and he actually interviewed, he, he knew uh, Elmer Irie's son and, and became friends with him for about uh, almost 15 years. Um, and I interviewed Mr. Folsom and, um, I, you know, he has this great passion for Irie too. So I think that's a great resource. A mom museum has, I have an article on the mom museum uh, called the shiny mark of incorruptibility. And that will give you a good synopsis. Um, All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to link when we post this interview, we're going to link to the mob museum, but give us a couple of minutes on that. You were kind enough uh, a few years ago to host an event for us at ACAMS and I went separately another time and uh, I am just blown away at both how interesting and how detailed it is. I know that Irie's descendants uh, donated a lot of uh, documents, artifacts. As you mentioned, there's the, uh, uh, the room where the uh, Kefauer hearings were, that's there, there's videos. Give, a, give folks a sense uh, big picture of what to expect if they get a chance. I know you're on the board of directors that go to the mob museum. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, the mob museum is fantastic. And it, if you type the mob museum, you'll see the ratings, which I don't know of another museum in the country that gets these ratings. It's one of the most popular uh, uh, things in, in Las Vegas. It's a nonprofit organization. Um, and uh, it, it is probably the only place in the country that really tells Elmer Irie's story. Uh, so if you go there, um, you're going to see historical documents. You're going to see Capone's gun. You're going to, more importantly, you're going to be able to see Mike Malone's gun, uh, the great undercover agent. And they tell the story of, um, you know, the tax dodgers, you know, going after the tax dodgers. Um, you know, a lot of people go to Vegas because of conventions. I really encourage you to go there. I mean, this is this museum is uh, it does a fantastic job telling the story of organized crime in the United States from from the beginnings all the way to the current. 
Um, and uh, not only is it highly rated, it's highly respected amongst law enforcement on their advisory board. We're talking, you know, eminent people in federal, state and local law enforcement. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you really get an objective picture of, of organized crime in the United States. And you'll also realize that how important following the money right. has been to going after corruption. Yeah. Uh, so I really encourage you to go. And they have a working still <laughs> yeah. there. I've been, you know, I said, uh, yeah, I've been there a couple of times. I was actually there. This is all pre-pandemic. was there on a Sunday during football season, and it was packed. It was packed. Uh, and it was actually, uh, in a good way, annoying. It was so hard to get through, but it was so comforting to see people that were so interested in this. And before I let you go, Paul, I know, uh, you know, you've done quite a bit in, in your career in IRS, obviously now working in the gaming industry. I have to think that probably one of your most exciting parts of your career was when you yourself received the Elmer Lincoln Irie Distinguished Service Award. So I, I, I'm sure that that really uh, must have been an amazing, amazing honor for you. Oh, it certainly was, you know, and I have to really thank Chief Weber and Chief Fort um, that, uh, you know, their support for, for allowing me to continue this is kind of be the sure. unofficial historian. I know at one point, Chief Weber and I were competing on who was the most fanatical Elmer Irie fan. And, uh, they, you know, it's interesting, the Elmer Irie fan donated Elmer Irie's uh, office chair. Uh, to Iris CI and every CIA chief is able to it sits in that chair and I and I just thought it it's, it's the coolest thing how to remember you know that how important that role is and you know I got you, you know uh, even with uh, Chief Lee uh, it's just amazing to see the succession of chiefs that just really live up to uh, the spirit of Elmer Ivory I know that they're all passionate supporters of the legacy and, and it really is a great to be in an, an organization that has such a rich legacy yeah there's no question and uh a quick aside when i was able to do a podcast with chief weber a few years ago it was in his office so i i did I, you are 100 right the chair is actually there so i did i did see the chair and, I, and it had been refurbished and so he was very proud of that as was don when i was able to interview him after the fact Paul, uh, thanks so much for not just keeping uh, the legacy going, but the importance you place in financial crime history. You know, I, I'm, every time you have an article in, in ACAMS or other publications, I make sure to look at it because it's always not just well done and well crafted, but it's, it's pretty consistent with how you are in terms of, you know, we're a much better society when we can, we can figure out, uh, as you say, how to follow the money so that we can stop the movement of illicit funds and, sh and certainly, um, you know, understanding our history, how statutes are used and um, importantly, how people have evolved in, over time in terms of using uh, new tools is, is just so important. So th thanks so much for this. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, John, it really means not a lot coming from you and, you know, you're, you are a legend in the industry and, uh, I've got notes to write a story about, uh, you know, we chatted about your work and, you know, there's a, still a lot of stories to be told. That is, and, uh, yeah. When you know, and you <laughs> yeah. know well, you're very kind, Paul, <laughs> stay safe. We will talk soon. And then those of you, uh, we're going to put this on the, when we put this on the website, we'll put a link, but as you're listening to this, 
when we do post it, it'll be on iTunes, themobmuseum.org. And you'll learn about uh, Director Irie, but all, also much other things that have gone on in terms of law enforcement going after, in many, many, most cases, successfully prosecuting organized crime. So, Paul, thanks again. Stay safe.